Psalm 4. It reads, To the choir master with, st with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my, shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Let me pray. Father, we thank you um, that we have now the opportunity to jump in the book of Psalms together. Um, such beautiful, um, just uh, re revealing Psalms that kind of reveals the, the condition of our hearts, God. And so, Father, I pray that as we dig in, that you would open up our eyes and our hearts. May our hearts be good soil this morning, that it would produce good fruit. And whatever words that I have to say, if they're just my words simply, God, I pray that they would be forgotten. But if there are your words, may they stick, may they bear fruit, and may we not just be hearers, but also doers of your word as we go out and live um, and love our neighbor, work, um, love our family, and serve in whatever capacity you have given to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So at the beginning of my marriage, uh, my wife and I, we moved into a small house in the city. Now, it was a friend's of a friend's house, and it was kind of a, a, they gave us kind of the school teacher plus seminary student discount. So it was like a really affordable house that we were very privileged to be a part of, and actually we still live in that house right now. Um, but as we lived in there, and as the landlord was very gracious to us, they also, um, we also kind of noticed that the house had a few like old things and like broken things. And and so we don't want to be like noisy and kind of like, you know, a knowing tenant. So we basically tried to fix them ourselves. Um, so as a husband, I was thinking, um, you know, I'm going to be a handyman and serve my wife by fixing all these different things. And there was one old bathroom faucet that was leaking. So what, what I did as a proud husband, because I had no idea how to fix a sink, what did I do? Go on YouTube, all right? That is probably the default way most husbands solve problems in the household. Go on YouTube. And so I looked, and about 10 minutes, I thought I was an expert, all right? So I, I bought the, bought the uh, equipment, got my tools, and tried to fix it, but it pretty much was a disaster. It was a disaster. Uh, I, I bought the wrong like, faucet size, so I went to Home Depot to get the right one. Um, and after I got the correct faucet, I didn't have the right tools, so I had to go back to Home Depot and buy some more. I probably went to Home Depot like four or five times in a span of two to three days to fix this leaky faucet. And after hours and hours of frustration, you would think that as a good husband, I would just admit defeat and ask for help. No. I don't do that. I didn't do that. And I tried to fix it, and I eventually got it to work, but um, I still, I mean, I, I think it works still, and I, I hope it does, but I think I fixed it. But I kept trying to do it by myself. I kept trying to fix this sink by myself. Now, I, I know that this wasn't like a huge problem in the house or huge trouble I was facing, 
But I asked myself, is this normally how I handle all my problems? What if the problem was a bit more than a leaky sink? What if it was my health or my finances or my family issues? Do I try and fix it myself? So I was wondering, for you all, for all of us, when difficulty arises, when hardships come, when troubles are facing our lives, how do you handle them? Just look back these past three years. Just look back. We've had a pandemic. We've had political division. We've had you know, f- family issues, relationship hardships, mental health deteriorating, job uncertainty, anxiety, fear, violence, and so much more. And it, you know, there's not over. There's a lot of issues still going on in our society and probably in our own lives. If we were around the tape and looked at the areas in your life where there was a leaky sink, how did you handle them? My bet for most of us as proud, self-sufficient, um, whether American or whether we're just individualistic or whether it's the culture around, most of us probably tried to fix it ourselves. But when we enter into Psalm 4, and really a lot of the Psalms, instead of this model of I can do it myself, we see a very different model. A model of I need help. I need help. And King David, who wrote about half the Psalms here, he models this first. And we see in Psalm 4, the pre-verse. Now, if you look at Psalm 4, you notice kind of like in the ESV, it has like the kind of the all caps uh, context here. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a Psalm of David. Now, just a, a heads up that whenever you see that, this is not like a heading that the, you know, the, the people who publishers put in the Bible. That's actually verse one of the Psalm. So it's just as important for most contexts. It gives the context of the Psalm. For this one, we know that it was most likely sung and David wrote the Psalm. But it tells us the writer and the occasion of the Psalm. But for this Psalm that we have here, there's not too much context here besides David who wrote it. But also we have to remember who David was. He was the most powerful man in the world during this time when he was king over Israel, but also the most powerful nation in the world. And in this, the most powerful and wealthy man, we see here, he says, I cannot do it on my own. Help me, Lord. And he models a better way for us when we are facing troubles. He prays. He prays. In other words, he doesn't put his trust in himself And when times of need come, he goes to God first. And this psalm is a beautiful example, I believe, of how we should pray. So I'm going to walk through three ways in which this psalm helps inform us how to pray. So let me jump with the first one. And I think there are slides here you can see behind me. The first one is pray with honesty in your distress. Pray with honesty in your distress. From the onset of David's psalm here, there is this urgency from David. He starts in verse one with four imperative verbs, which are like command verbs, telling and boldly, unashamedly crying out to God, answer me, O God of my righteousness. Give me relief, be gracious to me, hear my prayer. 
Notice there's no, there's no fluffy language here. David is straight to the point, and he is brutally honest with his need for help. You know, scholars, they dispute on exactly what is going on in David's life at this moment. Most lean towards the period of life where David is actually being chased out of his kingdom by his own son, Absalom. Because if you go back to Psalm 3, you'll see that he writes Psalm 3 in that context, and they they think that there might be some similarities there. But more than the circumstance of this psalm, I want us to feel the emotion behind this psalm. If it was truly David's own son who betrayed him and chased him out of his own kingdom with his life on the line, imagine the physical, the psychological, the mental, the emotional, the spiritual weight that David is pouring out here in this psalm. Imagine how helpless and powerless he feels right now. And I imagine as he's penning these words that tears are dripping down his face, covering this psalm as he's writing it. Answer me. God, give me relief, help me. David wasn't hiding anything before God. Now I know for some of you kind of thinking like, isn't this kind of like too over dramatic here? Isn't David just being too emotional? Well, let me ask you, what is prayer supposed to be? In Van Geerman's commentary on the Psalms, he says, and I love this definition, Prayer is a form of communication in which the child of God casts himself or herself on the mercy of God. Prayer is a means to experience and connect with God who is our Heavenly Father. And if we are his children, shouldn't our prayers be brutally honest to him? Now, I mean, if, uh, if you have kids here, or even if you have a pet like a dog, now, to be clear, not the same thing, but I think they kind of express similar things, when, especially when kids are young. Um, what do they have in common? Kids, our dogs, our pets, when, it's funny because it's interesting. When they are feeling a certain way, they are brutally honest with how they feel. There is no kind of, kind of pacifying it. They tell you when they're hungry or when they're thirsty. They yell at you when they need help or they're angry. They cry when they are sad or hurt, and they whine when they are bored if you are ignoring them. But what sets them apart from many of us, like adults, is that they are not afraid to confess they need help from someone who is greater and more powerful than them. The issue for many of us, and I'm talking about myself here too, is that our prayer lives, our engagement with God, is often too filtered by our own self-sufficiency, our own abilities, or our belief thinking that everything is fine with our lives. Some of us come before God with everything in order, put together. That's the only way that we come to God. Or some of us simply don't come to God because we think our lives are perfectly in order. But the first step in all of our prayers is not more time or even more words. The first step is an honest and needy heart. Paul Miller, the author of A Praying Life, he says this, a needy heart is a praying heart. Dependency is the heartbeat of prayer. For many of us, we have forgotten that neediness is always the starting place for our prayer life. And as David says in another Psalm, God desires a broken and contrite heart. So that when trials and hardships come our way, we must go to God first. 
We must speak honestly. We must cry out to him, plead with them, and boldly ask him like a child does to their own parent. God can take it, and he hears our cries. Let's move to the second way, the way that we should pray. Number two, pray so that you won't believe the lies. Now, it's interesting here in our psalm here. If you go to Psalm 2, it seems that David is now talking to someone else. In Psalm 2, he says, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? David here is talking to these men. Literally, the word there is men of rank. So they could be landowners or wealthy men or government officials. But it seems that these men have gone astray by personally betraying David or bringing upon him shame, maybe speaking negatively towards him, and then they are pursuing vain words and seeking lies. Now, it's interesting. The, the NIV, they translate those last few words. It says, how long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Commentators believe that possibly what's happening here is, you know, possibly something is going wrong in Israel. Maybe a drought, maybe some warfare. And these men of rank were going against David because of this issue. And instead of trusting God and seeking him like David was, these men were abandoning God and seeking after false lies and false gods. These gods who promised them reign our prosperity. And so these men of rank would go and pursue them and follow these lies. So in other words, these, these men were tired of waiting for God to answer their call. They took their distress in their own hands. That's why if we go now to verse 3 and 5, David is in a way calling them back, calling them back to follow God. David says, Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. He says in verse 4, Be angry, but do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. David is pleading with these men to not pursue the lies and false satisfactions of these other gods, especially in times of hardship and trouble. You know, for me, this past month, so May, this last month, um, was a bit frustrating for me. You know, I've had to have some difficult conversations. Uh, I felt discouraged in different things that were going on um, in family and church things. But probably the most frustrating thing that happened this past month was some physical ailments. Um, I have a history of back injuries, and my back has not been doing so well during uh, this last month, and it's still bothering me. But what happened also was I messed up my foot really badly. I, to this day, don't know how I messed it up. Maybe I'm getting old, I don't know. But I messed it up, and I had a really hard time walking or even putting my shoe on. And there were times in my physical pain where I cried out to God for help and for healing. But after some time, my heart became impatient. And it was tempted to look elsewhere. I found myself tempted to eat more, tempted to neglect my work, tempted to get more irritated at my family, tempted to buy useless things, and tempted to just let my mind wander into some pretty negative thoughts. So instead of waiting on God, I wanted to take control and get that relief I wanted in a different way rather than praying 
and waiting. Now I know for us in this room, when we are struggling, when we are in hardship and pain, after some time we've gone to God, it's really difficult when relief doesn't come. What happens if God takes too long for you? What happens when we don't get the relief we want from God immediately? We might not shop around for other gods like these men of rank did in Psalms, but we definitely turn to false gods, our cultural lies that help numb the pain, or fill the void, or stop the distress any way we can. We turn to the God, to the God of pleasure. We gorge on um, different things. We self-medicate with maybe beer or wine, or we chase the next relationship that will finally fill us up. Or we turn to the God of escape. We scroll through our feeds for hours on end. We binge watch whole series on Netflix. We read maybe romance, romance novels or play video games or build an alternate universe on the internet. Or we turn to the God of work. We live at the office or take the office home every night. We put in 70 or 80 hours a week and have no time for anything or anyone else because we're trying to prove we matter in the world or because we're dealing with the problems at work is a lot easier than dealing with the problems at home. Or we may even turn to the God of being religious. We do religious activities to earn favor with God or gods. We go to church or give money or volunteer or help the poor and do a lot of good things so that God would bless us. But instead, what does David recommend these men to do? He says in verse four, and I find this so interesting, be angry and do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. I've read that verse at least a dozen times throughout this week because I've never seen so clearly how being angry is separate from sinning. Or perhaps another way to put it, the anger is permitted, but the sin is prohibited. I don't know about you, but I grew up in a culture where um, it... People told me that it was better to hide my emotions, that it's better to hide them because emotions are dangerous, our emotions are misleading, and if you let them loose, they'll do, you'll do ungodly things, stuff like that. And I imagine that I'm not the only one that's heard that in this room. But I wanna say that being angry is okay, that it's okay to feel and say your emotions whether it's anger, sadness, grief, pain, or whatever else. And I learned this recently that when you cry, tears are actually good for your body. They help regulate your emotions, they calm you down, they enhance your mood afterwards. Instead of suppressing our emotions, our anger, we need to honor them. Because it's when we suppress them or utilize them in unhealthy ways is when those things usually go toward sin. But instead, what David says as he continues in verse four, ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. That word for ponder there can also be translated as commune or reflect or meditate. And then when you see that word heart, and for the rest of Psalms, when you see that word heart, it's not just talking about 
the, our emotions, as I was talking about here, but it's the word that refers to our entire being, the core motivations of why and what we do. So what David is saying here is, yes, let your anger, your emotions be genuine, but also lean into a time of quiet reflection and meditation where you can let your emotions, your mind, and even your body enter into a deeper conversation with God. So what David calls for is a type of prayer that is honest, that is emotion-filled, but that also takes time to reflect and meditate, especially even in silence. Because only when we do that, when difficult times are coming upon us, that's when we can do verse five. When we can offer right sacrifices, which in that context means to worship and put our trust in the Lord. When we go to prayer with our whole being, including our emotions, it will allow us not to fall into temptation or the false promises or false gods of our age, but it will help us lean towards worship and trust before God. Now the third way, the third and final way that we see David pray here. He prays with deep confidence in the Lord with deep confidence. You know, verse six begins with a kind of indirect question to God. It says, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. David here is most likely referring to what these men of rank are repeating, or even when others who do not follow God are asking in times of trouble and distress. It's kind of like this Hail Mary or this last minute prayer that they're saying, asking God to help them respond. But I'm not sure if you've ever seen somebody do this before when people are kind of at their last, at their wit's end, and when they're kind of throwing up these last minute kind of Hail Mary prayers. But you know, when people do that most of the time, they're, they're really, they really don't believe it's going to work, right? They're kind of just saying it out of frustration or anger. They say them in those ways, but what David does and models here is that there is a different kind of way. In verses six through seven, um, or seven through eight, I mean, David says this, and um, this is, these two verses are great to memorize. You have put joy in my heart than they, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. In David's distress, he did not throw up these same kind of empty or these last minute prayers. Instead, he confidently reminds himself of the joy and peace that God offers. Notice that David's joy and peace are not based on earthly prosperity or earthly protection. That for David, no matter, or that for David, his joy was not based on the abounding grain or wine, which is a symbol of prosperity. That for David, no matter how much he had of that, and remember here, David had a lot. He had a lot of grain and wine. But in his riches probably make ours look like pennies. Even then, he realized that his joy, his gladness was not on what was temporary. 
Similarly, his peace was not on his armies or his fortresses, but it was in God alone who gave him the peace to lay his head and sleep. And remember, if he's writing this time when he is fleeing from Absalom, every single day his life could have been taken. But his peace was not in his protection, but it was in what was everlasting. You know, when I read these last two verses, um, it kind of reminds me of a Korean story my mom told me when I was growing up. Now, before I share this story, um, I, I'm sharing this story not knowing if this like folklore was 100% true for all Koreans growing up, because you know, as parents, you kind of make stuff up sometimes. I'm a newer parent, and you know, I'll be honest, I kind of make stuff up too for my kids. And so I, I share this story not saying it's like true for all like Korean folklores, but was what I heard growing up. Um, it was a story of uh, a rich man in Korea. Now, this rich man had everything he wanted. He had homes, uh, food, influence in society, servants, and whatever he could want, he could have. But because of his pursuits of business and pleasure, most of his family left him, uh, and he was by himself. But one day, he was really, really sad. And no matter what, all the things his servants tried, all the things that money could buy, or all the people he could meet, or influence he could have, nothing seemed to make him happy, or especially laugh. So in the middle of the night, he decided to go through, uh, take a walk in a small, poor village. And as he kind of walked through the village, he, he noticed all these tiny homes and the low means, and he like thought to himself, at least I'm happier than the people here, right? But then he heard a faint sound. And as he walked closer and closer to this house, he noticed the sound was laughter. And it intrigued him. And as he approached this house, he peered inside one of the windows, wondering what could be so funny. And through the window, he saw this entire family kind of squished in this home, grandparents, aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters, mom and dad, around kind of, and there's a fire in the corner, and the fire was just about to go out. There wasn't much left in it, but their attention wasn't on the fire. Their attention was on a little cradle, and it, there was a little baby who was providing all the joy and laughter that entire family needed. Now, the moral of that story, um, as I learned, was that, and it's not that much different than David's final words here, is that joy and peace are not present in what the world can offer us. Joy and peace are found only in a relationship. For this poor family, it was the joy of the baby's laughter. But for us, as the church, it is the joy and peace of an infant given to us in our greatest distress. The reason why we as a church can pray with confidence to our Lord is that our God has chosen to enter into our distress so that we could find true joy and peace. God would send his only son from the joy and peace of heaven into our broken and distressed world. Instead of condemning us, Jesus humbled himself and lived among us, church. He would listen to us, serve us, teach us, and scripture says he would even weep with us. He would experience the pain and sorrow that sin brought onto this world. He would even get angry, but he would never sin. 
And then when there was no hope for all of humanity, church, because of our sin, Jesus Christ would take upon that sin, that death on a cross and die a death he would not deserve. But then, church, we know the story. He would rise in three days, and he would declare victory over all sin, over all death, over all brokenness, that whoever would come to him to have their relationship in him could find everlasting joy and eternal peace in a relationship with him. And Jesus would declare that victory because one day, one day, church, Jesus promises that all the sorrow, all the pain, all the trouble that you are facing right here and in the future will be completely abolished when he comes back and he fulfills all things where there will be no more tears, no more sicknesses, no more death if you have a relationship with God. The gospel message, church, is a loving God pursuing us so that we could find our true joy and everlasting peace in him. So that we don't need to keep going back after these false gods and these desperate prayers that never satisfy us. So that we can be confident that our God will respond to our cries and prayers just as he did when he sent his son for our sins. Now this doesn't mean, church, that um, God will answer all your prayers are that um, all things would be good and happy and dandy, but that he promises, and throughout scripture, throughout the Psalms, throughout the New Testament, he promises you that he will always be with you. And that his presence, as David says, is greater than any kind of wine or grain or protection you can find here on this earth. That his presence will put more joy in our being. Church, my challenge to you as we go throughout this book of Psalms is that we would pray like David prayed, that we would pray like David prayed, that we would pray with great honesty in our distress and our emotions, that we would pray so that we would not fall into sin, and that we would pray with such great confidence, knowing that the promises of God that he gives to us are true and everlasting. And you'll also see, too, that Psalm 4 is one of the first lament psalms in the book of Psalms. And there are 59 lament psalms throughout all the book of Psalms. That's over one-third. And why are there this many lament psalms? Lament are basically are prayers that are forms of grieving and anguishing and bringing them before the Lord. I think it's in the Psalms so often because there is still much trouble and brokenness that the human life experience. And this is one of the ways that we connect with God. And so my prayer, church, as we go through Psalm 4 and the rest, and we'll get to a lot more lament Psalms, is that we pray like David prayed. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your word this morning. Thank you that um, it calls us, um, it reminds us, it equips us, but also, God, it challenges us to pray the way that David prayed. God, I do ask that you would please humble us, that we, that we would see how much we need to go to you in times of trouble, how much, God, we cannot do it on our own. And so, God, humble us this day as we go throughout our, our day today, our weeks ahead, this summer in Psalms. Help us to pray like David did. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.